Hello and welcome to Three Peas in a Pod, brought to you by the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm Paul Jarvis and with me today is Deputy Editor Jonathan Davis. Good to be here. In this episode, I speak to Stuart McMillan, partner at law firm Berger Salmon. We take a deep dive into the UK PPP market to discuss the different models that are being used and what the future holds for PPP. After that, Jonathan and I will pick out some of the key discussion areas. And so without further ado, we'll start the interview. Hello, Stuart. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. So for our conversation, I think we're just going to have a canter through the UK PPP market, what was once the PFI market, but hasn't been that for quite a long time now. Um, I was checking, actually, just before we got started on how long it has been since we've had a PFI or PF2 programme. And it was actually 2018. So that's four years ago that Philip Hammond got rid of it all. But when I speak to people in the market, and I'm sure it's the same for you, in the UK, looking at PVP, there's still plenty of activity. People are still busy. Everyone tells me how busy they are regularly. It's really odd because it feels a lot longer than four years. And I guess that must be a good thing because people remain busy. There's a lot still going on. And yet it turns out that there's life after PFI and PF2 under various guises. And actually, what's really interesting when you look at the market these days is in some ways people have found ways to get on with things and to close deals using other tools because ultimately PFI, PF2, they were tools to deliver infrastructure. And what we've discovered now is that there's actually a lot of other things that you can do. And it's looking across the market, there's so much going on now from you know town centre regenerations, all the great work that's been done in the net zero space, particularly things like offshore wind and you know just seeing how that market has developed over the last 10 years or so. And now we're looking at new models, you know, things like tax increment finance. Um, RAB is, is something that everybody seems very interested in. And I'm, I'm sure you're seeing a lot in that as well. There's lots to do. I think it's probably fair to say that there's more to be done as well. There's a very ambitious infrastructure pipeline that we have in the UK. And to deliver that, we're probably going to need to use all those tools that I've mentioned and many more. And you've mentioned some of the big names there in terms of the tools that we have for us uh, since PF2 died his death. I think you mentioned tax increment financing. That's something that people have talked about for a while and seems like a good idea now and again, but has never perhaps had the big takeoff that people might have expected or wanted. But certainly, I think around some regeneration projects, we're seeing local town centres coming out almost on a weekly basis wanting to find a joint venture partner. So do you think there's maybe scope there for that more ambitious level of TIF, perhaps coming in on some of the bigger areas? I, I think there is. TIF's been around for a long time, and it's a big thing, particularly in the States, where municipalities such as Chicago actually issue bonds to raise cash for all sorts of infrastructure. And the idea behind it is a very good one. You know, you, you delineate an area, you improve that area and then you hypothecate you take the uplifted tax revenue from that area once everything's done and use that to repay debt in the uk it has been done there's a few schemes but it's always been done on the basis of public sector borrowing from the public sector i think there's scope to expand that out there's certainly regeneration schemes where i think that would work very well a few that were obvious things like cardiff parkway where people are building a privately funded railway station, there's infrastructure, there's commercial property around that. So that sort of thing is very much focused towards or amenable towards 
TIF. So definitely it's a tool that we could use more. In some ways, it's interesting that it's not been used and people have found other ways. I mean, you mentioned joint ventures as well, and that's becoming quite a neat and often quite a clever way of raising finance as well. I saw the other day, I think it's East Kent NHS Trust is doing just that, and they're effectively looking to form a JV in order to upgrade and add an additional section to their hospital. And that's them putting land into a scheme and in return for additional land that could be used for things like housing, um, the development partner is going to to build the extension to the hospitals. It's, it's quite interesting that that sort of thing's happening. And again, it's just people finding ways to get on with things now that PF2 is away from us. Yes, absolutely. And in terms of private finance coming into the health sector, finding that new way to do things is quite interesting. I think the fact that the East of England project that you mentioned refers to it as a design-build finance is quite interesting as well. You know, it's not something that we've seen an awful lot of in the UK. It's something that Canada in particular seems to have taken a lead on. Infrastructure Ontario is doing quite a few pieces around DBF. I guess that has its positives and negatives, really, doesn't it? Uh, in the case of East Kent, they got a project done that you know perhaps otherwise they wouldn't have been able to. But the obvious negative is that PFI in its original form was created partly as a response to a lack of operational maintenance funding for UK infrastructure over the long term. So the question then is, does that mean that we are sacrificing the immediate need over the need for looking after that asset, whatever it might be for the longer term? I think potentially we are. It's a very interesting point. There's a lot of schemes and again, you know, back to Canada, that's exactly what they're doing in some of the schemes over there is they are missing the FM piece. And in some ways that's fine, but it might give you problems further down the road. I mean, one of the big things that people are discussing at the moment is handback, that, you know, all the early schemes are are fast approaching handback. And it'll be interesting how that pans out. But at the moment, public authorities have not only the handback piece and have regulations, contractual provisions around about how things look when they're given back, but actually that applies throughout the life of the contract as well. And there is a certain rigour around that. I mean, okay, there's been problems and various stories about people perhaps enforcing things in a way that's slightly harsh or not partnering. Others would argue that actually you know, all you're doing is forcing what's in the contract. But I think when that rigour's gone and that regime, it will be interesting to see exactly what that means for the condition of assets throughout their lifespan. So we'll have to see how that pans out. Yeah, that's definitely something to keep an eye on in the longer term, isn't it? But I think back to, you know, what we're focusing on today, the different models and different approaches. You mentioned earlier RAB or regulated asset base. That's definitely the flavour of the month with the central government. You know, they've made quite a big fuss around the using it for the nuclear program, Sizewell C project. And I think there's sort of an undertones of it being used elsewhere, perhaps in transport and other major central government projects. Do you see that filling the void there for some of the bigger projects? And actually, could you see it being used for some of the more risky schemes? I, I absolutely can. I mean, the, the project that everybody mentions on RAB is Thames Tideway Tunnel and how successful that was in taking that model and implementing it there. And what's really interesting about RAB and what, to my mind, is really good about it is the flexibility of the model in terms of being able to flex things such as the allocation of risk, cost overruns, how they are dealt with, how the revenue stream that comes into a project is modelled and take all these things and actually flex it 
for the particular asset that's involved and it, it worked really well in relation to Thames Tideway so you had the fact that it was actually a revenue stream as things were getting constructed was really helpful for a project of that size and then the involvement of off what throughout people got comfortable with that as well so actually I think what it does is on these very very large schemes it allows you to almost sort of construct a regulatory model around the project in terms of how that works, get people comfortable with it, get all the stakeholders on board with it. And then you have something that works really well for everyone. So I I think certainly on the larger schemes, on schemes where it's not appropriate simply to seek to transfer a bulk of the risk onto private sector investors, I think it's a fantastic model. You mentioned transport and it can be made to work for transport, it depends on which transport. I mean, obviously, the background to the model that, that it came from the rail industry was used there for a while, so it's doable in transport. But what it always needs is some sort of strong regulatory structure where you can take your revenues from the end user and use that to pay the project. So, so it's using people to take the benefit of the project to actually pay for it ultimately. That's harder when you don't have a regulatory scheme built around it already. I mean, obviously, things like water, there's a strong regulatory piece there already. So it's easier to work. I think transport, depending on which part of transport you're looking at, like that may be less amenable or certainly less easy to apply the model. Not to say that you can't apply it, but it just might take a little bit more thought to do that. I think for smaller schemes, it's perhaps not the model. I don't think people have ever intended it to be used for sort of smaller scale social infrastructure schemes, things like that. You mentioned water, and that's another area where we're seeing innovation at the moment in procurement with the the DPC or Direct Procurement for Customers program that's really just getting underway and just being rolled out with the first one, the Horswater project. How do you see that developing? I think that's great. I mean, I know there's five or six projects now that are in the pipeline on that. The Hart ones is very big for a, a pilot project, and I wonder whether that might put some bidders off. I, I'm not sure, but it's an awfully big project to use as the first one. I think on the other hand of that, it means it will be real rigour in implementing the model there. It's a really interesting model. Lots of aspects of it look rather like PF2. But there's other aspects that look awfully like RAB, you know, the presence of the regulator and regulating that revenue scheme into the project, that looks awfully like RAB and there'll be a similar need to get comfortable with exactly how that works. But yeah, I think that model should work very well and, you know, hopefully will be rolled out in other sectors as well. Yeah, and I think we talked about a lot of the main ones here, in joint ventures, RAB and various other forms with DPC just mentioned. I suppose the one other one to mention is the mutual investment model. It's currently on hiatus, really, in that the Welsh government created it, used it for several projects, but has yet to come up with another pipeline. And of course, up in Scotland, it's been touted for use, but as yet nothing has come through. So what do you see as the prospects for MIM? I hope that it can be used. MIM is very interesting and up here in Scotland, definitely keen to see that used. I think it would work very well on the road schemes when they come to the market. It's a revenue finance scheme, um, so it's exactly what the rest of the UK and the non-devolved UK, the government has said they're not going to use. I, I hope it is used here because revenue finance and that sort of model, I think, does have a place as one of 
a number of tools that are available to use. I think it's slightly short-sighted to sort of discount one tool and not have it there. I think it's useful to have. Yes, and I think the interesting thing really, if you think about the various models we have talked about so far, is that none of them really deal specifically with the use of social infrastructure. So building maybe a group of schools in an area or building a group of GP surgeries or clinics or even a major hospital. The closest we get is perhaps joint ventures where a school or a GP clinic might be part of a wider mixed-use development. So I think that something probably needs to be included there that can provide that sort of social infrastructure side. I think that's right. And rightly, in my opinion, at the moment, the focus certainly on central government is on economic infrastructure. And that, from a government's point of view, is where you get the most bang for your buck if you're looking to build back better, get through a recession in terms of investing in infrastructure. So I think that's definitely right. But for social infrastructure in the world, there will be a need to keep investing in social infrastructure. That sort of model works in my mind, pretty well. There's always going to be issues around about you know, things about flexibility of changes, all that kind of thing. But as a model, I, I think it forms a very good basis of how to do things and how to do things well. And bear in mind as well that a number of jurisdictions are still using that model very successfully. Yes, and then there's early contractor engagement and that kind of stuff that is definitely something we're seeing again, you know, less in the UK, but more overseas particularly, I think, in North America, the US and Canada are doing some interesting things around trying to get contractors engaged at an early stage and actually working through the project from that early stage. And I guess the question that always comes up is how do you avoid the reduction in competition that comes with that? To my mind, it's possible, but it does become tricky, particularly if you have a thin pipeline of projects and you're asking contractors to spend a lot of time and Ultimately, that involves people's time as well as money in engaging with things and looking at things and, you know, providing meaningful input into it. And then, you know, they don't proceed and there's no lessons to be learned that can be taken on to the next deal because there's not a next deal that looks exactly the same as that one. Then that could easily put people off, particularly if, you know, again, it's back to the fact that it is the low-hanging fruit elsewhere. It's a really quite tricky balancing act in there. Because early engagement can only be a good thing, but it can only be a good thing if, you know, even if you lose out, there's something in it for you, there's a lesson learned, there's you know, something you can take and use in the next deal. If that's not the case, it becomes very hard. Now, the one thing that we haven't talked about, actually, that probably fits into everything that we have discussed, is, of course, the UK Infrastructure Bank. So where do you see that fitting into all of these different models and approaches? I think it's a massively positive development that we have. UKIP. I think when you actually look at it, it's pretty incredible that, you know, from it being announced as a concept not so long ago, we're now at a place where they've they've recruited a number of staff, they're really gearing up. It, it can only be a good thing. There was always question marks around about EIB and whether, you know, it was really offering additionality. And being honest, there were deals I saw where I kind of wondered why they really were in there. I've read through the strategy plan and it seems very measured and thought through in terms of making sure that there is additionality and they're you know, helping to bring other people to the table, helping to deal with market capacity issues, things like that. 
so that's great if they can do that and particularly if they can target sort of early stage development things like EV charging things like that then it can only be good I think certainly what I've seen so far the intent is there to make sure that they're you know really doing something to make sure that this infrastructure pipeline that we have can be can be delivered and that they're a big part of things so I think it's it's a really exciting and welcome development we'll see how it goes yeah indeed i think everyone will be watching it very closely and particularly watching how they manage the balance you know the need for making a return which is part of their mandate alongside that need to invest in things that no one else will invest in well thank you very much Stuart, for your time today it's been a really interesting interview and was nice to go through the uk ppp market and prove once again if it were needed that just because philip hammond called pf2 dead doesn't mean that ppp is dead in the uk life goes on indeed it's always good to end on such a positive note so thanks for your time today Stuart. thank you paul good to speak to you great well thanks very much for that paul that's a really wide-reaching discussion about the market because there's one as you start off by saying where on paper, it looks like there's not a lot going on. But once you get a little bit down a level, you see there is a lot of different variety of models being used, projects coming forward. But it does take that little bit of walkthrough that Stuart's just given us. Yes, absolutely. I think there were some good pieces to come out of it as well in terms of the different things that are being used. One perhaps obvious one to start off with, we talked a bit about tax increment financing. I think that's quite uh, relevant at the moment, given that it's, I guess, in many ways, similar to the idea of investment zones, dreamt up by Liz Truss, one of our recent past prime ministers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, it's not yet clear, obviously, whether our new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, will continue with those or whether he'll change them in any shape or form. But I think there is still a big question whatever comes, whether it's tax increment financing, whether it's investment zones, whether it's some other concept around hiving off areas of the country to create investment. Uh, there's a question on whether it can really be delivered in a you know, relatively small geographic country, because the kind of criticism really has always been that effectively it just takes funding from one area and places it in another, and then you attract the businesses that were working in one part of the country to go to another part of the country. And actually, it doesn't necessarily create new growth. It just creates growth in different places, if you like. Yeah, definitely. I thought it was interesting how Stuart kind of framed it. He says that it is a tool that could be used more. But as you know, we'll talk about later on, it's within the context of all these different models. And it might work for one area, it might work for another. But as we saw kind of with PFI, that programmatic approach can sometimes not work so this idea of just using it appropriately i mean it's it's kind of cliche to say it we say it all the time but it is there and it's just he says and there's it there is life after pfi but is under different guises and this just could be one of them yes certainly i think there's definitely experience of it working but as i say it goes back to really the geographical questions i think the experience of it working tends to be in places like the u.s where you know, they're talking about much bigger spaces and you're talking about bringing investment into, say, Chicago. Well, it's not necessarily going to be the same businesses that you're creating new business in Chicago compared to LA or Miami or New York, wherever it might be. So there is that question over it, but definitely it can be done potentially on a sort of smaller scale. They used it to an extent on the Battersea Power Station project, 
which does seem to have attracted investment in and brought in with it a new rail line that wouldn't have been there otherwise. So, um, yeah, I think there's definitely potential for it. Again, going on to your point, John, is about it being one of the various tools. One of the other points that we talked about was the, the kind of the move to design, build, finance. I think some you know, suggested to me that the private sector won't necessarily be keen to take this on because investors may feel that they're taking effectively all the risk, but with none of the real return. I think that the concerns that have been sort of talked about around this is the fact that the private partner will have no equity to help them get out of trouble. So, you know, for example, if you're late as a developer and you end up losing your construction margin because of the cost per day of being late, then there's no equity there to kind of cover that and effectively give you a cushion. Yeah. It's just a, such an interesting concept to cut off the OM of DBFOM because, it's, as you say, one of the main reasons to use the model is to have that operation and maintenance and guarantee that quality of service. But again, it touches on handback where it's going to be very, very interesting to see how that is received when these get handed back and hopefully they're in good condition, whether that could actually change the perception that we have on the model and that the public sector might see it as, okay, actually, yeah, this has worked in what is intended to do, which is quite hard to see when you're in the middle of these big contracts. So that could be an interesting moment. Yes. And the other thing it's, I suppose it touches on as well is the question of value for money. I'm doing a bit of work at the moment looking at value for money in the US market in particular, where there's quite a lot of chatter around how you develop a kind of program of value for money, which I think we've talked about previously, actually, on these podcasts. And one of the um, questions there is, well, if you don't have the operation and maintenance, then does the value proposition stack up in quite the same way? Hmm. So I think, yeah, it's good to see, you know, new approaches, new models, new variants coming along. But whether they all stack up, whether they all make sense, again, it'll probably be a, a horses for courses situation, won't it? Yeah, definitely. And you, me- you mentioned North America, it's a great time to kind of queue in Canada and what they're doing because now that's become the reference point whereas the UK was the forerunner it seems like Canada is really leading the way on the innovation and you touched on early contractor engagement their infrabank as well is a few steps ahead of ours it was great to hear Stuart's thoughts on the infrabank which are quite positive and seeing that he thinks it's got a quote-unquote measured mandate and the impact of that amid all of these challenges, like delivering the net zero pipeline, it could have such a, a transformational effect on how these projects are developed and, and come through, and it could open up some great pipelines. But we need, as Stuart said at the beginning, lots of these different models to be used on, because there's just going to be so many projects coming through. Yeah, and you mentioned that word pipeline. Obviously, a key thing that everyone talks about, looks for, demands, uh, don't always get. But I think, again, one of the areas we talked about, and obviously Stuart was, was quite uh, positive about, was the use of direct procurement for customers, the, the kind of water model, if you like, that's being used by Offwat to encourage more investment into water assets across the UK. It's definitely the one that, when you talk to people, they mention it as this is something that is an actual pipeline perhaps pardoning the pun, but um, there's definite excitement around that. And I think you can tell from, from what Stuart was saying that, you know, it's seen as 
not obviously a replacement for sort of PFI, PF2, but is at least a program there that people can get their teeth into, understand and potentially roll out, you know, one after the other. Yeah, it's got to be worth the investment and time and and everything. And that pipeline enables that if you can see it coming down the line. But I know this is something that you've looked into quite a lot. So what, what are some of the, not the drawbacks, but the concerns people have? I've heard some people th- think it might be too big, some of the early projects. Yeah, I think that's the big stumbling block at the moment. So, so far, only one project is tendered, which is which is fine. It's a, a kind of a pilot project, if you like. But the sort of reticence from the market around that project has been that it is a one billion pound plus project, which is the it's the hose water scheme by United Utilities. And I think as a pilot project, one billion pound is quite a lot of money for, for investors. Um and as a result, I think a few people have said, yeah, we're we're interested in this DPC model. It looks good. We're maybe keen on it. But they've looked past that first one and are saying, yeah, maybe, you know, number two, number three, where you can see there are figures there that people are talking about somewhere between 50 and 150 million, 300 million. That's more of the investor sweet spot. It'll be interesting to see. We should find out actually fairly soon, I think, who is uh, bidding on this first project. You know, good luck if they get a number of bidders, then you know, it should be should be happy days for them and for the model as a whole. Um, and, you know, if it can be made to work, there will be lots of organisations, not just here in the UK, but around the world, that'll be looking to it, you know, both in the public and private sector. Public sector looking at it as, here's another potential tool. You know, you talked about Canada earlier, the particularly infrastructure in Ontario, they're always looking at new ways of doing things. Um, you know, why not look at this model as well? Um, and the private sector as well, if they're looking to put money into things and they can see that this model is something that, is generating interest, then you know we could have a healthy pipeline, not just of projects, but actually of bidders lining up, willing to invest. Yeah, it's fascinating to see, kind of in the UK market, how with the DPC there's questions around too big, but it doesn't get much bigger than Sizewell C, which is also using a relatively new model. It's definitely new for nuclear, but we have seen the rab in the water and transmission projects. But it's such a big project that. It's a monopoly in itself. That's why you need to have the regulator come and get involved. That sounds like it should be quite a rigid structure. But actually what Stuart says is it's got a lot of flexibility built into it that the RAB model can do some really, really unique work, which we've seen with Thames Tideway, which is a massive project that can be really effective. Yes, definitely. And we should probably just mention that RAB is regulated acid base model just for... um anyone listening who's not quite sure by all the acronyms but yes definitely and dpc is a a, i guess a stage on from the thames tideway rab and taking that further and you can definitely see i think some countries particularly larger economies maybe the us so taking that up and running with it to a certain extent on you know whether it be water whether it be other projects potentially even in transport i think um as stuart mentioned rab effectively began in the UK in the regulated transport sector. But, you know, why not look at it for other projects around particularly things like bridges in the US where they have a huge need? Uh, You know, you could quickly get to some big figures in terms of replacement bridges and that sort of thing. If you can somehow create a regulated environment around that, why not? And it may potentially reduce the conversation around toll roads and toll bridges in the US, which is really getting quite toxic in many places you know we've talked about on this podcast before about 
the situation in Pennsylvania where they had a program of P3s ready to go but had to um, amend that approach simply because the local communities objected to the use of tolls to pay for them. That is a difficult one because with RAB you really have to have everybody pulling in the same direction. That's all the stakeholders. You've got private sector, you've got the regulator, you've got government. That's going to be hard to do when toll was a quite a contentious area anyway. But I mean, if it can be applied, that is such a huge pipeline, especially in the US where you've got this infrastructure that was built 70, 80 years ago that's coming to the end of its life. And that's happening across the United States. So this inventiveness, we talk about it quite a lot on this podcast. This does feel like a moment of regeneration and rethinking how we approach these projects. But that carries a risk in itself. Yes, and just going back to another previous podcast where we talked about what we did in New York Mm. and how some of the conversations we had there around what is P3 to a certain extent. Um, And I did an article actually on the website about our conversations around electric vehicle charging and P3s. And I just think that the conversations, it was quite clear that there is now talk of what is P3 in terms of We've had a model that is public-private partnership. It has to fit into the straitjacket. Actually, increasing in the US, what is public-private partnership? It's it's where there is private finance coming in to help out public sector need. And it doesn't have to be in a particular form. It doesn't have to be design, build, finance, operate, maintain. There are various ways of doing it. I just think this is, whether it be RAB, whether it be the DPC idea, there are ideas that... I'm sure other countries can look at and, and take on and develop to meet the needs that they've got. And you know, the US obviously has some huge needs. Yeah, definitely. And the world over, we have such a changeable time at the moment where we've got problems with inflation, climate change, energy. You know, this is a time where things need to be looked at differently. And there will be a space or there likely be a space for the traditional DBFOM But these are new problems at the same time, especially the volatility in supply chains. Things are going to have to be different to the long forecasting that we see at the moment. But what form that will take, I think that's the exciting question as well. It's an opportunity as well as a a difficulty. Yeah, certainly is. And then I guess finally, one of the other areas we talked about that was interesting and particularly around creating a pipeline is the mutual investment model, which came along, created by the Welsh government many years ago now. Took a long time really to get projects going. They've finally sort of progressed all their projects now. The last one has been in procurement and reached preferred bidder. So the question now is what happens next? No pipeline in Wales beyond that. Talk that there may be more projects being thought of put through a MIM model, but nothing so far. Similarly, Scotland, as discussed in my uh, interview with with Peter Rieke for one of these podcasts, actually, where they've been tasked with looking at this, but they haven't actually produced any projects yet. So mutual investment sounds nice, sounds quite fluffy, isn't as harsh, perhaps, on the tongue as private finance, and uh, has that kind of element of bringing together local Mm. organisations, local communities. We kind of cynically joke about MIM, PFI, PVP, they're all the same, but does look to put in a lot more sort of public element into the contracts and, you know, public good coming out of them. 
I mean, we're seeing progress in joint ventures. And as we've discussed, DPCs, RAB, there's a lot of impetus to use the elements of private finance to scale up and use the skills of the private sector to innovate. But for some reason, MIM isn't or doesn't seem to be building on the foundation that it's laying with these projects. Um, those projects, a lot of them, as particularly Wales, are in their early stages. So it's going to be fascinating to see how they progress and whether they can actually blaze a trail that I think a lot of the industry was hoping for. Yes, maybe then to end on a slightly down note after all this positive talk of different models and different horses for different courses, there is that question, I suppose, isn't there, of just reinventing the wheel for the sake of reinventing the wheel. And actually, private investors, they want to see something that they recognise and are able to deploy capital to in a relatively straightforward manner that yeah. they are used to and understand. So MIM is there. If it's not used, is something else that's going to be used? In which case, do we have to start again? Mm. Uh, do we have to come up with more acronyms and <laughs> uh, and new new words to describe what is essentially putting some private finance into public projects? Yeah. And, and it's the same question as we've seen under the Liz Trust government where net zero was called into question in some ways and as we're recording this, Rishi Sunak is non-committal to going to COP. Whereas if a year ago, you would have said that the net zero pipeline was as promising as any in our sector. So the stability that investors need, particularly for these long-term investments, as you say, is much needed. And I said earlier on, it's great to have regeneration, but you also do need to have solidity to be able to make those investment decisions. Yeah, so... That's, I guess that's where we finish. We look for new and exciting things, but we'd also like some stability, please. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Stuart.